0: For our Bible reading today, we will read from John 1. John 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known.
1: Good morning in Christ's name to each of you all this morning. To begin with, I'd like us to turn to our text, which is 1 Peter 1, verses 13 to 25. And I'll read that before we launch in. As we read this, pay careful attention to action words. This is a passage that calls for action And so, listen uh, to those words as we read. 1 Peter 1, uh, beginning at verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed So that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Shall we pray? Father, as we consider this passage of Scripture this morning, I pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds to understand Open our hearts to receive, Father, that your word may change us, that it may teach us how to live. Guide our time here, and we pray this through Christ, amen. Our title is to prepare your minds for action, and our passage begins with the word, therefore. Therefore. Anytime you see that word, you must reflect upon what was in the previous passages. And so, let's think carefully. In our last two uh, sermons from 1 Peter, we've centered on two two biblical truths. The first was that salvation is God's idea. It was His plan. It was His way. And it flows from His sovereign will, and it's developed in the three persons of the Trinity. And that God elects those to salvation. That Jesus died and gave his blood. And that the Spirit calls and sanctifies. So this idea of salvation is not a creation of man, but it's God's idea. And it flows through his person. And then in the next set of verses we looked at the glorious living hope that we have in Christ. The Christian religion is quite different from others in that we don't follow a dead prophet. We don't follow somebody's writings. We follow a living Lord. And today in this passage, in reaction to those, we ask the question, what now? So, if those two things are true, what now? How are we to now live? The question is no longer, what must I do to be saved? Or what does that salvation look like? But the question is, what must I do now that I am saved? And so, as we go through this passage and we think about what must I do now that I am saved, you must keep in the back of your mind the whole time that God saved me or us through the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. It must be central in our minds as we think about how we are to now live, that God saved us should be the foundation or the footer with which we build everything else upon what we'd like to consider this morning is how the knowledge of the truth of the gospel propels a believer to reject the world's intoxicating allures and to seek holiness with his entire being. Let me repeat that we're going to consider how the knowledge of the truth of the gospel propels a believer to reject the world's intoxicating allures and to seek holiness with his entire being. And in this we'll look at three specific truths that come from this passage of Scripture and we will apply those to our lives and how they would affect us. So the first truth that we'll center on is that God demands holiness. God demands holiness in the life of a believer. We are not Saved to live unholy lives. We are saved to live lives of holiness. Verse 16 says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. When you see the word shall, it is an imperative. It means that you absolutely must. And so God demands holiness from the life of a believer. This is not uncommon throughout our biblical text. God throughout the, Bible, the, the, the biblical story has required holiness of His followers. It begins in Exodus 3, where God says to Moses, Do not come near. Take off. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you stand is holy ground. Those who are in the presence of God are demanded to be holy. In Leviticus 6, he tells Moses, speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, this is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. The location where sin was, where, where, where the sacrifices were made because of sin was most holy. In Deuteronomy 7 God says to the people of Israel, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. But you are to be a people holy. In 2 Chronicles, as Hezekiah is entering back into the temple worship, he says to the priest, He says, Hear me, Levites, now consecrate yourselves. And consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry out the filth from this holy place. He says, clean up the mess. Don't go there dirty, and don't worship there with it being dirty. It must be holy. And in Psalms 24, David says, Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false. Who can approach God? The one who knows him truthfully and the one who seeks holiness because of that truth. He doesn't revere what is false. He doesn't revere what is evil, but he seeks holiness In Isaiah 62, he says about the people of God, that they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. We also have the ideas of holiness in a negative sense. In Isaiah 1, he says about the children of Israel, he says, a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, They have forsaken the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, and they are utterly estranged. So the Bible is quite clear. Those who are in God's presence must be holy. And if they are not, they are estranged. They're put away from God. In our last sermon, we talked a bit about the holiness of God and its pure, white, hot purity. And it's perfection. When we realize that God has this requirement of people, we realize that compared to Him, we are never big H holy. And in that realization, we all react like Isaiah and we say, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah, in the presence of God, realized his undoneness, his inability to be perfectly holy. And again, this is where our overarching foundational truth comes in. We are saved by the glorious gospel of Christ. We realize that apart from that, we are undone. But God still requires holiness. And so how do we move from a recognition that we are not fully holy And how do we understand our weakness in that as we pursue holiness? And that leads us then to the second statement that we would like to make. And that is that the right knowing of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ will produce obedient living. So the gospel story says that Jesus stood in our place. He absorbed our penalty, and He stands, His perfection stands as our righteousness. And so our obedience, or our holiness, is not a holiness of earning merit. It's not of earning salvation, but it is a result of salvation. And so the right knowing of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ will produce obedient living. Proverbs 9 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. 1 John 3 says, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And John goes on there to say that the mark of a Christian is holy living or visible righteousness. So the way we tell if a person is truly a follower of God is if we see evidence of righteousness. We see evidence of holiness in their lives. And in our text here in verse 17, we have this knowledge explained. It says, If you call on Him as Father, or if you understand God to be the Father, If you understand him to be big G, God. If you understand him to be creator. If you recognize him to be who he says he is. Then live that way. Conduct your life in order with the truth that you espouse. In fact, we could take verse 17 and place it directly in front of verse 14. And say, and if you call him... As father, then act as obedient children. If you claim him to be your father, then that claim will be verified by how you obey him. In verse 13, he further talks about setting our hope on Christ. And as we discussed in the previous section, that hope is not a kind of a fingers crossed, I hope this is going to work out. Um, As Brother Jerry mentioned afterwards, it's not wishful thinking. It is a firm, I'm going to bank my life on this truth, hope. In a practical sense, though, we all act this way. The idea that we would know truth and know God as he is and not live accordingly is actually quite foreign to the physical reality Um, A a brother here was telling me about an interaction with some farm animals that he had and how a steer was after his life. It's was coming to get him. And he acted in a split second in ways that preserved himself from injury. So now, let's just imagine if he were cognitively aware, there's a steer coming towards me, and he did nothing. Just stood there, ignored that reality. Big, 900-pound steer, you know, straight at you. Uh, I'm just going to stand here and, you know, none of us would act that way. We don't drive our car that way. We don't eat food that way. We don't do anything in our physical lives that ignores reality. We react in accordance with it. The illustration that I gave the children downstairs is that by our five senses, we feel the world around us. And if we would ignore those senses, um, you know, the door would probably be dented and we would all have bruises. But we don't live that way. The visible known reality, those things that we say are true, inform us how we must act or react. And so, if we say that God is our Father, and if we say that He is the Creator, and if we say that he holds the keys to ultimate reality, then we should pay attention when he speaks to us how to live. We should obey what he says is real. But we, of course, have our ways of clouding that reality. And I think we do this uh, primarily by taking our focus off of God himself, the person of Christ, And we place it on other things. And we do this, I think, primarily in two ways. Our primary ditch to the right is to focus on just simply living and acting. We're going to figure out what's the best way to live, and then we're just going to focus on that, we're just going to live well. And we consider obedience in very specific ways, but then we take our eyes off of Christ. In doing so, we place the focus of our obedience on ourselves. It becomes more important to maintain our position. And over time, our hope in God wanes. And we begin to trust in our ability to obey in certain specific areas. The Pharisees in the New Testament were a perfect example of this. The prayer of the Pharisee, he states, you know, all the ways that he's being obedient to God. He ties, he prays and fasts, he serves, he perfectly keeps the law. And because of that, God should justify him. But Jesus says he went away unjustified. The sinning publican rec- recognizes God as holy and himself as sinful, and he begs for mercy. God is at the focus of his prayer and Jesus says he goes away justified. Now, of course, there is a ditch to the left that reduces this knowledge of God to a simple academic experience. There's no connection between the, the mind and what we understand about God and then the inclinations of the heart. The temptation is to assume that due to our great knowledge of God, that obedience is optional or that knowing God is somehow the obedience. And the more exotic and the more intellectually rigorous that that knowing can be, the better off we ourselves are because we have some sort of higher, more well-developed knowledge. And of course, I think you see people in both of those ditches, pitching stones back and forth at each other, um, not recognizing that Christ is not the center. So this passage would teach us that if we are going to recognize God as center, as true, as right, as holy, then we will automatically, obediently walk in His ways. And that takes us to our third statement, and that is that right knowing takes focused, disciplined, and persistent hard work. This right knowing doesn't come from uh, a surface understanding of God. It comes from a lifetime of seeking to know more and deeper who God is. And we get this from verse 13. And the English structure of this verse, I think, confuses things a little bit. And so in reality, we could take out the the little comma sentence qualifier there, and say, therefore, set your hope fully. And the way that we set our hope fully is we prepare our minds and we be sober-minded. So how do we prepare our minds for action? the exact rendering of the the original text there is to gird up the loins of your mind and if you have a King James that's probably the language that's used there it's actually more literal gird up the loins of your mind or put on your tool belt get the tools that you need to complete the job do serious preparatory work we see this word picture elsewhere in Scripture, uh, in, in the case of Elijah in 1 Kings 18, it says that Elijah gathered up his garments or he girded up his loins and he ran before Ahab. So, as he was preparing to run, he had to prepare himself to run well. And in Exodus 12, uh, in the build up to the Passover, they were to uh, eat with your belt fastened with your sandals on your feet, and with your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. So they were to be prepared, to have the tools ready to do their task. And Luke 12 says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. The picture that we have is of one who is constantly seeking to be prepared never resting on his knowledge, never thinking he has it all together, constantly searching and seeking to know more of God. We think of a tool belt. Our tool in in this tool belt is the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God, as we stated earlier, as we truly know him, forces us to obey, that which we know, that's what we assess to be real, then we should walk in obedience towards that. And so, if we're going to prepare ourselves to obey, then we must know more about God. Because the more we know of Him, the more we will seek to obey who He is and what He says to the world. Now this, practically, as we think about knowing more of God, can include many things. It can be reading and meditating on God's Word. It can be reading and and, and understanding what other men have thought about God's Word. It can be personal research. It can be experiencing God as we interact with other people and with nature. It can be going to conferences. It can be any number of ways at which we attempt to learn more of God. If you've been around people who do construction, um, or people that work with tools, you will know that they're never really satisfied with the tool that's in their hand. Okay, so I've got this nice east wing hammer. But you know, there's some really nice Dewalt welded ones now, and they're really cool. But you know what? Better than that yet is the titanium ones. This is a hammer. You just use it to hit a nail. But for some reason, if you work with those people, the, the, the tool in their hand is never the one that's the best. There's always a better one. That should be our attitude. The, our knowledge of God should never be enough. We should be seeking for more and deeper. Knowledge, because that knowledge will then drive our obedience. The second phrase then is we are to live or we are to be sober minded. So we're to prepare our minds and we're to be sober minded. The idea here is not of uh, living without the Influence of alcohol, although that's probably involved. But it's that our world has a way of intoxicating us. Our world and its pleasures and the good things even that God has created here in the world have a way of intoxicating us to the truth, to the realness of God. As a person who is intoxicated has a very dim sense of what's real, if we allow ourselves to be intoxicated with the pleasures and the joys, it can pull us away from seeing clearly God. So his call is to be sober-minded, to have a firm resolve that the truth of God is what's central and what is truly real. I think this call is to all of us i don't think anyone here you know from the from the person who struggles to to interact regularly with with god and to seek him regularly to the person who may spend an hour or two or three hours i don't think any any of us are satisfied when we truly know who god is we understand that he is unfathomable and that we can spend our life seeking him and never fully plumb the depths of knowledge. We often seek to obey. We often seek holiness by attempting to pull ourselves up. And often we fail in a certain area and we attempt to just force ourselves but most of the times, our disobedience is not a result of our inability, but it's a result of us not assigning true reality to God. We disobey because we, we don't fully place our faith in what He has said to us. My prayer this morning is that each of us would see God as He truly is, and would seek in our life to know him more fully. In conclusion, I'll read again from 1 John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made, in him was life, and the life was the light of men.